very, and I would say quite different from the rest of Canada. We, we have modern treaties here with the, the vast majority of the First Nations. There's just two in the Yukon that are not, do not have model, modern treaties. So there's a different framework from many other parts of Canada. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast is the first of a series of podcasts looking at the current challenges and future prospects of supplying electricity in Canada's north. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom and features my conversation with Andrew Hall, the president and CEO of Yukon Energy, headquartered in Whitehorse. Yukon Energy is the principal electricity generator in the territory. It operates a grid connecting hydro facilities, and it distributes power to a third of the locations outside of Whitehorse. Here is my conversation with Andrew, recorded in June of 2020. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Delighted that uh, you're able to join us to talk about the future of electricity, but particularly in a northern context. So what I'd like to do before we get into the specifics of the the situation in Yukon uh, and Yukon Energy uh, is to ask you about, um, and this is a question I've asked other people on the podcast, how did you wind up as president and CEO of Yukon Energy? Did you grow up as a young boy saying, I want to be in the north and I want to run a company? Um, no, interesting question. And and no, I uh, I didn't grow up dreaming to be a utility <laughs> executive. Um, I, I mean, I think I was wanted to be in a sort of a technical field, though Though I, pretty early on I, I started gravitating more to towards management. So I started off as an engineer, um, production engineer in the mining industry, both in South Africa and in Canada. Um, but but then I, I, you know, just started getting interested in more the management side. Um, but I took a segue through the, the alternate energy at the time it was called, uh, space. So I joined a venture-backed startup working on hydrogen and fuel cell related technology so I worked on in that for about 10 years or so Um, so that gave me an exposure to the utilities business Um, so the utilities would have been one of the customers that we were targeting Um, but I I, I didn't really imagine that uh, that I would be working on the other side of the fence and at the time I probably thought utilities were big boring lumbering businesses which was probably a a horrible misunderstanding on my part at the time. Um, but, you know, no, I mean, it was pretty opportunistic the way that this opportunity came up. And, you know, it looked really interesting. I, I was intrigued by the, the the opportunity in the north of Canada to be in a jurisdiction that is that is growing. And, and I mean, that's certainly playing out. We, we, we're growing um, quite strongly in terms of population. Um, you know, industrial growth tends to be a bit uh, lumpy here, but but certainly population-wise growing, um, and therefore sort of exciting. So, I think that's what intrigued me about the north. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I've lived in many places, so um, 
obviously South Africa, had three years in China, lived in the UK. So the, the idea of moving around and experiencing different things is not, uh, not, not um, foreign to me. So really how long, how long have you been in the North now? It's almost six years. So okay. yeah, it's been, been a good, been a decent stint. How much of, of course, how it much takes, of a, a, takes a long time to get anything done in utility. So, <laughs> <laughs> how, how long did <laughs> you take it in a place for a while? Or <laughs> to, to adapt to, to, to the North, um, you know, because I mean, you said China and South Africa, but the, the North yeah. is very different from, um, you know, from a place to live. How, how was that adaptation? Um, yeah, place, place to live, not bad. I mean, White House is actually not a bad climate. Um, I, I could, I could. I would appreciate a bit more warmth in summer, but really in terms of winter, it's not too, not too bad, a bit, a bit like Northern BC, I would say. Um, so I think it, at, at lifestyle wise, it's a pretty pleasant place to live. Actually. It's, it's, it's a small, small city, but it's got a lot of amenities for, for a city of its size. So um, I think that the adaption in, in, in the North is, is just around the way things are done, the, the, the large role that government play in the economy. Um, mm-hmm. And in the way, and then of course the, the the role of First Nations in in the political and economic climate is is critical, and and you know very, and I would say quite different from the rest of Canada. We we have modern treaties here with with the the vast majority of the First Nations. There's just two in the Yukon that are not that do not have model modern treaties. So um, there's a different framework from many other parts of Canada. Um, but so, so understanding that all those dynamics takes some time for sure to to understand how to get things done, and that, that's probably the biggest adjustment. And, and coming from the private sector as well, mm-hmm. for me into into you know a, a crown utility, obviously takes takes a lot of getting used to. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think it's a fascinating business to be in, and you know you touch all all manner of all parts of people's lives. Um, you know, you touch the industrial sector, so it's a, it's a key cog in the economy, and I, I just find it fascinating every day mm-hmm. the, the, the diversity of issues that you deal with as a as a utility CEO. Yeah, well, hey, I think it's matched in many other businesses. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's maybe let's uh, pursue that a little bit. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the the kind of the role that Yukon Energy plays um, in. I mean, it's it critical in the energy picture, in the territory's economic and the territory's social fabric. Um, so, yeah, could you talk a little bit about uh, the, the role that that Yukon Energy plays uh, plays up there? Because it, it it is different than, than elsewhere, right? Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, we we first of all, the Yukon is different from uh, Northwest Territories is different from none of it. So we talk about the North, but the the, the circumstances are, are quite different in terms of what the grid looks like. So we have, you know, we have a, a transmission grid that's islanded from the rest of Canada and, and Alaska, but it, it serves about 95% of the population of Yukon. Um, so it looks more like a, a southern grid in terms of the way it, it functions, with an important difference that, as I said, it's islanded. So, you know, we have to meet demand at all times of day and, and, and all parts of the year in a way that, you know, we can't import and export to other jurisdictions. So operationally, that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, in terms of comparing to the other territories, um, you know, Northwest Territories is about, you know, they've got a substantial off-grid um, community, you know, and then none of it is all off-grid. They're all isolated communities. So, you know, 
there's commonality across the north, but there are also significant differences. Um, so in terms of you know Yukon Energy's role, we we're the main generator and transmitter. We we don't do a lot of distribution. That's done by um, ATCO. Mm -hmm. So so we don't. And then that's that's a bit of a a problem for us, I, I feel, because we we lack that direct touch point with the customer, which is becoming that much more important with um, all the the drivers that are impacting our business. A lot of them are on the customer side of the fence, right. on, the, on the customer yeah. side of the meter. And so we don't have a lot of direct exposure to that. We don't have a lot of ability to influence it. So, you know, what, the, what does that mean? Well, we have to do it indirectly by, by working with ATCO. Um, but at the end of the day, when people think about where does the electricity come from, they always point back to us. So, um, you know, in terms of all the new supply projects and where are we going to get the new renewables from, you know, that falls squarely on our shoulders. And so we're in the public eye in that respect. Um, you know, a lot more than, than the distribution utility, mm -hmm. I would say. Right. Um, the, you know, I think from a, another t a topical issue in the North will be power prices. I mean, we're mm -hmm. fortunate in, again, in Yukon that our uh, energy prices are, are competitive with Southern jurisdictions and in fact, cheaper than some, some, uh, some parts of Southern Canada. And that's a, that's a function of, of the way the assets were transferred from the federal government. We, the Yukon got a great deal oh, <laughs> back okay. when the assets were transferred. So, right. um, but, but I mean, the challenge is how to keep those, I mean, and this is not, not unique to the North, but how to keep those prices um, affordable while delivering on all the, um, the, the objectives around keeping the, the, the percentage renewables high mm -hmm. um, and min minimizing the amount of fossil fuels in the, in the energy mix. So, you know, keeping a lid on power prices going forward is, is a huge challenge for us. Yeah, and, and so in terms of our role, you know, that, that the scrutiny around power prices pretty much falls on our shoulders again as, as the main, you know, we're, we're the guys that have to invest going forward in the big generation assets. Mm -hmm. So how, how are things different? Because, yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got experience in, in different jurisdictions in different places, but how is um, ensuring electricity supply different in in yukon than than it is in in other jurisdictions you mentioned you're you're an islanded grid um but i mean presumably there's some technical challenges because of the terrain and the, and the weather there's 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 probably a, a range of challenges that are that are unique in northern climates that that, mm. that people don't see down south yeah well i i think that the, the the first sort of feature of an islanded grid is we have to meet um peak demand ourselves and so as you can imagine, the difference between our summer load when you know it's it's pleasant temperatures and winter when it's minus thirty, you know, our load can double or more. And so we have to meet that that large seasonal swing in in electricity demand ourselves. We have no option to import when to, to meet peak. Um, and that means that what you end up having to do is invest in a bunch of assets that, that don't run all the time. You know, you have to invest in capacity that just sits around for those coldest winter days. Right. And so that's a unique feature of an islanded uh, system. And historically, the way that those peaks have been met is just with diesel generation because it's cheap. It's got low, um, low capital and, and, you know, it's skewed towards your, your operating costs. So as a source of capacity, diesel or, or other thermal sources is... is makes a lot of sense it just doesn't fit with you know the climate change objectives mm -hmm. so 
you know, the, the big challenge because of our island and grid is, is how to find those renewable sources of capacity, which, which you know, when the traditional renewables, wind and solar, just don't give you that dependable capacity you need. Um, so that, that's what I would say is the, the, the most unique feature of, of, of our islanded situation. Um, I, think, I think in general in the North, what, what you find is the, the role of the federal government in terms of providing funding is much more, you know, they play a much bigger role here than other jurisdictions. Just because our, our customer base and our population base is so small that, you know, there would be no math to us alone investing in large hydro or other big assets, you know. And, and so historically, and, and, you know, we hope prospectively that, you know, the feds continue to play a big role in, in, in funding, you know, the, those projects. And so the, I mean, recent examples, you know, we, we, we the federal government provided 75% funding for a, a grid scale battery that we're, um, we're currently um, in the process of, of designing and building. Um, and if you go back in time, our last high, sort of significant hydro development, the Mayo B project, again, the feds came in for a substantial part of, the, part of that uh, capital. So the feds, one way or the other, play a, play a key role. In, in terms of weather, you know, you think about the north, that the, the climate creates large challenges. I think what we don't have in the Yukon is, is this issue of storm, storm hardening. You know, okay. we don't have large, you know, unusual weather events. Certainly historically we don't. And so, um, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the work that you, Southern utilities have done, you know, to, to harden against hurricanes, for example, we, mm-hmm. we just don't have that, that issue here. Um, you know, there, there are issues around permafrost uh, melting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, you know, that, that, that impacts mostly your transmission infrastructure and, to be honest, we haven't had any major issues with our existing transmission. Um, and for our new transmission that we're building, you, you can design around permafrost. It, it, can, it can drive a little bit of cost increase, but you, you typically just avoid the permafrost areas if you can. Um, so I wouldn't say that I've, we've seen permafrost melting, which is a huge issue broadly in, in global warming. Um, right. But specifically, I haven't seen that really impact our business too much. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly climate change. We, we've looked quite closely at what its um, what it, its impacts are expected to be in the north. Um, so we going back probably about four or five years ago, we 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 got some um, government money, some some federal support to do a research project with um, started off with the University of Saskatchewan and then moved over to the University of Quebec. Um, and in collaboration with Yukon College here, to, which is now Yukon University, um, actually, um, mm-hmm. to look at climate modeling. So to downscaling the climate models to the Yukon and then looking at how that is expected to impact both temperature and precipitation. So we've got quite good forecasts and it's a, quite a good piece of work that they're, they're just finishing up this year to look at what, what snowfall um, forecasts look like going out to 2100, so mm. quite a long time, time scale. Um, and in addition, what the glacial melt situation looks like, because um, for our Whitehorse Hydro facility, um, about 25% of the, the inflows to that hydro facility come from glacial melt over in BC. Okay. Um, so we, need, we wanted to understand over the long term you know, what's likely to happen to those glaciers. Um, 
so so we, we we've done it and we got great you know government support to do this work um so i think we've got a pretty good handle on on what the long-term picture looks like um of course that doesn't doesn't help you in the short run you know because you still get weather happening mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. opposed to long long-run climate change um but i think we, we we're pretty confident that if anything the the yukon will become warmer which you would expect but also wetter so increased precipitation mm, um okay. so so there's no there's no indication based on this modeling that we're looking at any kind of drought or, or reduced precipitation mm -hmm. it's, it's probably the opposite more more water to right. into our reservoirs yeah you mentioned you mentioned the challenges of wind and, and solar um and and also uh, the 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 fact that you you need to diesel backup for for peaking um what is the future going to look like um uh, what what's that future energy mix going to look like if we're heading into a world where we're going to be using um you know less uh, uh, uh diesel for example and and you you still have the challenges of of uh, of renewables in the north what's what's the mix going to look like in the future and how you know how are you going to get to that point yeah that's a great question and and again i'd say the the answer is again different across the territories you know i think um you know i won't speak for uh, for bruno and, and all there but i think they 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 face a unique challenge in their off-grid communities you know trying to re um, integrate small-scale renewables into small islanded grids um, likely with storage as well. Now, and there's some great case studies there, um, but it's, it still remains pretty expensive, right? Mm. So um, I think our, in the Yukon, I mean, we only have three, three material off-grid communities and they're all APCO communities. And I think one of them right now already has integrated solar in, um, again, with a lot of government funding, but they've done a great job of, of um, you know, putting in solar and, and battery storage into a, mm -hmm. a diesel islanded community. Um, and it's likely that the other remote communities will, will follow suit either with, with solar or wind. Um, so on grid, I think our plans are driven, you know, as you say, by the, the broad climate change agenda, but specifically in Yukon, um, the Yukon governments came up with a, a draft um, energy and climate change strategy. And, you know, it, it, it creates a, a specific mandate for us to, to maintain and increase our percentage renewable on the grid. And so, you know, we, we've been fortunate historically, we've been sort of high 90s in terms of percentage renewables. So quite an unusual case and, and comparable to say British Columbia, Manitoba, Quebec, the, the large hydro jurisdictions. Right. Um, the challenge for us is just how to maintain that number, anticipating growth in both industrial and um, residential demand. So it's mm -hmm. about where your marginal electron comes from. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, what we're looking at is, is a combination of some small scale IPPs and in the, in the Yukon small scale means pretty small. Um, right. So there is an, there is an IPP standing off a program, which will contribute um, about 10% of, of our current um, generation over time. Yeah, eight to 10%. Um, but the, 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 the big increases will probably be through um, connecting up a, a, pro, a, a hydro expansion project in northern British Columbia. So it's the, the Taku River Tlingit. Um, right. Already run a small hydro to feed the town of Atlan. Mm -hmm. And so we're in discussions with them around connecting. A, they, they're going to expand their project and then be running a connection to the, the, the Yukon grid so they can feed in 
um, you know, for us, a, a material amount of new energy to the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the real big game changer for us is, <clears throat> is a large pump storage project that we're looking at. Um, again, the, the best sites are in northern BC, just across the border. They've got right. great elevation change, great um, alpine lakes that you can take advantage of. Um, and, you know, some tricky interjurisdictional issues. And also, you know, we, obviously the, the, the local First Nations need to have meaningful, you know, um, roles in those projects, if, if not, you know, as, as developers of that pump storage uh, mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. But I think pump storage, you know, logically makes all sorts of sense for our islanded situation because you can take your summer surplus, which is either hydro or your renewables, right. and shift it over to the winter. And so, you know, pump storage is an interesting technology. It's, it's expensive, but I think it fits, in terms of fit, it, it fits very well for our needs. So that, that, that's a key focus for us going forward is to, to move that project forward. But it's very, very early stage, um, mm -hmm. almost embryonic right now. So, you know, you're looking at eight to 10 years to, to get that project um, across the finish line. Right. You, you've mentioned in that instance, but also previously, uh, um, but working with the, the local First Nation communities, how uh, important or how critical uh, are, are those um, communities and, and, and those First Nations to um, the business of Yukon Energy? Oh, yeah, absolutely critical. You know, I think the, if I, if I was to look at the, you know, those significant project developments going forward, you know, the Atlan project is right now going to be an IPP developed by the, 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 the Taka River Tlingit. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so 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 they're already in that business. They've got a lot of capabilities and experience um, with how to run small hydro. So you know it makes all sorts of sense, and and it's it's a key um, part of their plan as a First Nation is to you know remain in in, in the energy business. Um, but but just the broad context, you know, around First Nations aspirations and and you know speak to them playing a key role as as project developers not mm -hmm. not just host hosts of projects developed by someone else right. um, because to to get to get the the support and the from their citizens and and um you know they got their, their local first nation governments really you know they 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 need to see the benefit that they can't be just recipient you know mm -hmm. hosts of a project that that inevitably will have some impact um either to you know, and then of course we have to put mitigation in place where where you can, but inevitably this is an impact of some form. And I think the days of just rolling in there as the as the utility and and you know moving a project forward are are coming to an end. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to change our the way uh, you know our thinking and the, the way we we think about these projects moving forward. And and at a minimum partnerships, but but it could be, it could extend all the way to the First Nations developing the projects as proponents and. And selling us the capacity or the and all the, and all the energy, right? One of the one of the things that I also wanted to touch on um, that probably plays differently where you are, uh, and that is uh, electrification. A, a lot mm -hmm. of the conversation about electrification um, in in southern Canada and in the United States is all about electric vehicle penetration, and um, and then you know the discussion goes from there to heating and industrial processes, but the conversation usually begins and gets dominated by electric vehicles. 
when you and colleagues are talking about electrification in the Yukon, that probably plays differently. What what are the what's the potential electrification picture look like uh, mm. from from where you're sitting? Uh, interesting. I you know I, w- I wouldn't say it's actually all that different. Oh, okay. um, certainly in terms of intent, whether whether it pans out this way, who knows? But um, again, if you look at the the Yukon government's energy and climate change strategy, electrification is a key strategy because you know. There only we don't have a lot of industry here, relatively speaking. So, you know, you can't avoid going after home heating and and transportation if you want to get at Yukon's uh, GHG footprint. You just the, the the options are just not there. Um, so actually, if you look at um, at their plan, yeah, I mean they they're they're shooting for pretty significant penetration of electric vehicles by 2030. I mean, I would say on the order of maybe 20% penetration. Now, I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot, but, but Yukoners have a lot of vehicles. <laughs> I okay. think there's more vehicles here than people because um, folks inevitably have some kind of off-road vehicle to, to, okay. go in, right. to get into the bush. So I think we have around 40,000 vehicles. So that, that's about as many as there are people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Yukon government right now is targeting 5,000 vehicles. So what's that? You know, it's, not, it's a bit more than 10%, but less than 20%. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, and so I don't know exactly how that compares to, to targets for 2030 and other jurisdictions. But I would say that, you know, it's going to be a challenge to, to, to deliver that, you know, get that many vehicles, um, you know, in people's hands in the Yukon. Um, both from a customer acceptance perspective, but just, you know, practically, you know, we're getting the car dealership set up. You know, when you talk about 2030, it's not that far away. Mm-hmm. And if it takes you a couple of years to get vehicles in the showroom in Whitehorse, you, you, you know, the challenge just starts mounting. So, um, but certainly the government intent is there. So I wouldn't say, you know, in terms of plans, that it's much different from Southern Canada. Um, and it, what's interesting about it is you, you think about a big challenge being the reduction in range. Um, because of the cold weather, but 75% of the population of the Yukon live in Whitehorse and probably use their vehicles mostly to commute quite short distances right. um, to work, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the issue of range, range loss in cold weather, I, I think is a bit overblown um, for most people. The challenge is if you want to travel out to the communities outside of Whitehorse, then the distances become quite long. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't some plans to, to put in sort of fast charging infrastructure to allow for that travel between the communities. Right. Um, and sort of provide that basic network so that people don't have, the, you know, really bad range anxiety about traveling up to Dawson City, for example. And, you know, I think our, our view as the utility is that most people are going to charge up at home at night. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we see, you know, Yukon Energy wanting to to play a role in in, in that electrification space is, you know, what, what are our opportunities to to promote and participate in home charging? Now, right. I mean, that's an interesting question because it's across the meter. Um, but, you know, th- I think there's some interesting things that we might look at there to just make sure that um, we're providing the right incentives and, you know, to, to get people to, to charge up at home. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the other, the other big piece of electrification here is, is home heating. So mm-hmm. as, as you can imagine, home heating bills are significant. I mean, in my home, we run probably six $7,000 a year in, in home heating. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so it's expen- people are spending a lot of money on it, and it's a big source of, of a common mission. And so electrification of home heat is, is uh, 
again, a key part of the government plan. Um, but there's a recognition that it has to be done in a smart way. Mm. You know, putting in dumb baseboard heaters is is not going to help at all. And in fact, it'll hurt us because it'll end up driving peak demand. Right. And and really creating, exa- ex- exacerbating our, our problem with, um, you know, meeting those peaks. So, so there, there's a real focus on sort of smart heating devices, you know, mm-hmm. whether they're heat pumps or mm-hmm. um, electrothermal storage, any kind of technology that allows you to, you know, either heat very efficiently or, um, you know, use off-peak energy to do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so there's quite a big program to electrify um, quite a big part of the, 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 the existing, you know, building stock. And, and then, the, the, of course, the new building codes are quite, quite strict in terms of high efficiency um, building envelopes, for example. So again, just a, a recognition that you can't just drive electrification without you know, driving efficiency as well. Can we um, switch gears for a moment? Yukon Energy is a sustainable electricity company. Um, mm-hmm. And I know uh, going through that process, I mean, it's not horribly onerous, but it does take some time and there is some effort involved. Um, wanted to get a sense from, from you why you thought it was uh, important um, that that Yukon Energy go through the process to essentially be certified certified as a as a sustainable electricity company, and then you personally um, the commitment that you've made um, as as now chair of CEA Sustainable Electricity uh, Board mm. Committee. Yeah, I, I think um, you know when I came into this and, and took a look at what was going on and got a bit more familiar with with what sustainability was. Because to, to be honest, when I came into this job, I didn't really have a good feel for what the concept involved. Um, I think we felt right off the bat that the, the pillars of sustainability as, as CA defined them really captured a lot of what UCOM Energy was doing already. And so it, it spoke to our business strategy as it existed. And it was a nice way to sort of package up and explain to people a lot of the things that we were already doing. Um, and, you know, what, what, what I like in particular and, and what I think is really important about the sustainability concept is to look at broad, Look at it broadly across your business. I mean, it's not just about environmental sustainability, which is mm-hmm. what um, I think most people associate the word with, right. but it, it gets to, you know, key things like financial sustainability. And if you think about the, the, the challenge that utilities have with rates and, and aging infrastructure, you know, having a business strategy that allows you to be sustainable from a, from a rates perspective or a debt perspective is is absolutely critical. And then, so it's a, it's a, it's a good concept to weave into that um, conversation. Um, so so I, we just felt that, hey, I mean, this makes all sorts of sense. It, it reflects what we're doing already. And, and it's just a way to, to explain and, and articulate, you know, your business strategy in a very you know, convenient and, and um, way that, you know, resonates with people, right? Um, so, so, I mean, I think, you know, we don't, I'd say at Yukon Energy, I mean, we don't walk around every day talking about sustainability, but I think it's, it's, it's at a certain level pretty deeply woven into the way we do things. Um, you know, and, and we do look at it quite broadly. So it, it'll be, you know, your, your um, environmental sustainability, it's your sustainability in terms of your interactions with your community, with First Nations, and then and on the financial side, I'd say would be the three key you know, there's more pillars than that, but it, mm-hmm. it's, those would be the key ones that we, we, we think about. And then finally, one of the questions that I've been asking folks coming on to the podcast is about a book, either the book, a book that they're reading now or a right. book that they've recently read that they would recommend to, uh, to the listener 
So um, sure. what would that book be, Andrew? <laughs> so I have a, a, a bit of a unique interest in, uh, well, I, I like reading about entrepreneurs, so people who've founded companies, right? But I, I also like reading about big frauds that, that occur in the entrepreneurial and business case. So, <laughs> and, and so the book I read, uh, you know, I think late last year was a book called Bad Blood. And it's about the, a, a blood testing company called Theranos. Um, in Silicon Valley that was this classic startup that became a unicorn. So they had a multi-billion dollar valuation. And there was a, the key proponent is this tragic person, Elizabeth Holmes, who I think is up for federal charges right now um, for securities fraud. But basically, it's about how this company went from zero to a billion and down to zero again. Um, so I, I just find these, 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 questions, these stories about these flawed business characters just fascinating in terms of the way they hoodwink everyone including themselves so it's, it's quite an entertaining read actually <laughs> nothing to do with uh, the sector or anything but it, it's uh yeah just entertaining stuff fantastic well uh, uh andrew i want to thank you for taking the time to jump on the podcast i really do appreciate sure. it and this is a, yeah, this is pleasure. The first of a first of a couple of podcasts that we're going to uh, be putting out uh, on the the unique challenges in the north. Thanks once again. Perfect. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. Coming up will be additional conversations on the challenges of electricity in Canada's north, as well as more in our series of podcasts on lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.